And this morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. So if you could, please stand with me for the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. And it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray for Dan as he brings the word here to us this morning. I just pray that your spirit would, um, would illuminate the text for us, that um, the spirit would speak through uh, Dan's sermon here this morning, and that our hearts would be receptive. And I pray, that, Lord, that if there's any distractions, if there's any uh, sin in our hearts, if there's anything inside that would cause us to not receive your word, that you would uh, do a work on us and in our hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, it's uh, awesome to be up here with you guys. Uh, my name's Dan, and I'm excited to get a chance to preach from the book of Hebrews. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I, I hope you guys are enjoying the sermon series so far. Um, the book of Hebrews can be a little, like, thick, you know, it's one of those books that you have to read the same verse seven times before you start to kind of like get on the same wavelength as the author. Um, but what I've found that's helpful for me at least is to sort of like anchor down on the main themes. And so the two main themes of Hebrews are, one, <clears throat> Jesus is better than X. And the X could be Jesus is better than the prophets, uh, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, and today we're going to talk about Jesus being better than the high priest. And the second um, main theme is, like, don't walk away from the faith. Don't walk away from Jesus. Don't give up. And don't return to your old life. And this, like, the second question specifically, or the second theme specifically, had me thinking about, like, my old life. Like, what was pre-Christ Dan-like. And I don't know, I think it's a kind of a healthy thing for us to, to do every now and again, is to go back and look at, like, what was life like before we ever knew about any of this Jesus stuff? Um, maybe you ask your questions like, hey, was I ever tempted to just, like, walk away? Or am I tempted to walk away right now? Um, now, not everybody has, like, that, that, um, that typical conversion story, some of us grew up in homes where like Jesus was worshiped and we sort of like mature into our, our faith in Christ. Um, but then there's others like me who have that, um, that distinct moment in time. And for me, it was 1997, which I hate saying out loud because it makes me feel so old. <laughs> this group wasn't born yet, which really bothers me. Um, 1997 at a Young Life camp called Lake Saranac. Has anybody been to Lake Saranac? Okay, lots of Lake Saranac. Yeah, if you're involved in Young Life, you've made Lake Saranac. That place is amazing. And 
Like I wasn't going into that camp trip, I wasn't like a regular church attender in high school. Um, if I had to check a box on a form, I would say that I was a Christian. Um, but I wasn't like super into churchy things. And I wasn't all that into going to this camp trip, but my friends sort of convinced me by saying, hey, there's going to be mountain biking, there's going to be parasailing, there's going to be girls, and there's not going to be parents. And I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> so I didn't go to this camp trip thinking that I would be converted or that I even need to, needed to be converted. But I, I, looking back, what I think I realize now is this might have been the first time that I actually heard the, the full gospel from, you know, from creation, fall, Christ, you know, to, you know, Christ raising from the cross and offering us a, 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 a new life. Like the first time, or at least the first time that I listened to it, which is probably more accurate, the first time that I ever heard it. And on the sixth night of, uh, of camp, I remember um, with a group of friends praying and, and asking Jesus to rescue me. Um, and I'm not going to lie, that moment felt magical. And, and part of it is the staging, because, you know, in, environmental factors matter. Because there I was, I'm away from home, my parents are hours away, um, I'm with my friends, I'm by a lake, I'm, it's at night, we're talking about deep stuff, we're under the stars. Like, that feels magical on, all on its own. But looking back, I, I have to ask myself, did I, did I really know what I was doing? Did I really know what I was getting into? Because it's like, what does asking Jesus into your life really do? What does that mean? I mean, I mean what they had told me at camp was that I would like, get to go to heaven <laughs> and I would be saved. And, and that was a big deal to me because like, that was a real fear. I didn't kind of know where I would go if I died. And it was very comforting to know that, you know, okay, good. I know where I'm going. But the other thing they said is that you would start a relationship with Jesus. And that is like an abstract thing when you don't know what that means. Like I was like, okay, am, am I going to hear Jesus's voice in my head? You know, am, am I going to be able to ask him to do things for me? Can I call down fire on my enemies? <laughs> and so I prayed this prayer. And, and frankly, to get to the point, I'm, I'm just like, what superpowers do I get? And I imagine like the scene in the Matrix, and again, 90s kid, forgive me, the scene in the Matrix where like Neo, um, he starts to believe that he's the one and he opens his eyes and he can see the whole world is code. He can see like the code behind everything. And as I'm praying for Jesus to enter into my life, I'm wondering what I'm going to see when I open my eyes. Like, will I see angelic beings like floating around? Um, and I didn't. I did not. What if I said I did? You know, you, <laughs> time to get this guy off the stage. Um, but I didn't. But I went for. I was on this like spiritual high for a while. I rode, you know, on top of the spiritual mountain. Um, however, upon returning home, um, I grew to be somewhat disappointed in my newfound abilities. My life was basically the same, if not slightly worse. Um, you know, I still fought with my brother. We were like cats and dogs back then. We fought every day. I hated my job. I worked at a grocery store that summer. Um, 
I didn't get along with my girlfriend. I'm just kidding. I didn't have a girlfriend. <laughs> God couldn't even give me a girlfriend. <laughs> so that all was the same. Except now my parents thought I joined a cult. And my non-Christian friends started calling me Bible boy. So that was fun. You know, I, I started to quickly realize that like following Christ, it wasn't just like skipping down a smooth lane. It was more like, like walking the ups and downs of a rocky path. And luckily for me, I had friends at the time that were reminding me that, hey, a rocky path that leads towards Jesus is better than a smooth lane that leads towards nowhere. And 25 years later, I'm convinced that this is true. And I think this is, in a sense, what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. He's using a variety of ways to say, hey, Jesus is better. All right? Jesus is better. Keep your eyes up. Don't look back. And for the Jews, going back to their old religion, going back to that old life with that old religion, with the high priest... It was tempting, and the author of Hebrews wants them to know that he wants them to focus on Jesus, who is our great high priest. Now, before we can appreciate Jesus as our high priest, we probably need to build some appreciation for the role that the high priest played in Israel. It would not be just like hyperbole. It would not just be a, an overstatement for me to say that the high priest held the most important job of his time. His role was to be the grand mediator between man and God. And he represented the people of Israel before God. And there are times in life where having a mediator, someone who can stand between you and a powerful entity is crucial. Um, I've talked a lot about you know, my daughter Avery from up here, and uh, you guys know that she lived you know, a lot, much of her life at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, our initial stay at Cincinnati Children's was six months. Uh, we were six months in the NICU, and then after that, we were just frequent guests. And you guys would not believe this, but staying at a hospital in the United States is expensive. <laughs> it's, it's insane. And one of the blessings of Cincinnati Children's is that they assigned us a, a financial counselor. They said, if you have any financial problems that you have, I want you to go through this person. Okay, this person, our counselor, her name was Sarah, and she worked with the hospital, and then she worked with our insurance company, and then she worked with Medicaid and Butler County and a variety of other uh, organizations out there to get us every possible benefit that we could qualify for. She's the one who did all the documentation. She talked to the doctors. She gathered up all the signatures, and she filled out all that incredibly complex paperwork that comes with medical drama. And when we were there, for our time with Avery at Cincinnati Children's, our care was covered, our room and board was covered, the, the equipment that we brought home and the supplies that we brought home were covered, our home nursing. We had a nurse come into our home 
and, 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 and help us out for ha half of the day. Our home nursing was covered. And even Avery's formula, which was this rare and expensive formula, was covered. It's blurry because, like, everything in my life is blurry back then. But, like, I'm not sure we paid for anything out of pocket. I'm sure we had some expenses. But when we would get a bill, I would just send it over to Sarah and she'd take care of it. Now, one time, a bill did sneak through, and I saw it, and it had Avery's name, and the number next to it had seven digits. <laughs> and my heart just, like, sank. I'm just like, I'm, I'm done, you know? Like, and honestly, fin finances weren't at the top of my, it was just like one more thing. Okay, so now I'm, I'm just financially ruined on top of everything else. But what can I do? It was laughable. I don't have seven figures to, to throw at a bill. It was laughable. It was just a debt that I could never pay. But I sent it to Sarah and she said, don't worry about it. I'll get it taken care of. And so what I want you to see is that a good mediator is more than just a middleman. It's more than just someone who does paperwork. A good mediator is a symbol of hope. It's the hope that somebody has your back, that somebody is working out there for you. And this, this high priest represented hope to the Israelites. And I want to continue to kind of put some, um, some images in your head, put some flesh on this idea of the high priest. Um, Exodus 28 um, God describes exactly what a high priest must wear. So here's, here's a picture we're going to put up on the screen here. There he is. Now, this may look like Gandalf in a blue dress to you, but remember that these are ancient times, right? People did not dress like this in ancient times. This fine linens were, you know, were not something people wore every day. People did not wear colored clothes. You didn't I mean, that was only something that kings wore and royalty wore. So this guy, he's, his outfit, he's wearing, you know, colored, elaborately designed, embroidered, bejeweled, begolden. His outfit was akin to royalty. And the people that he um, interacted with would have been inspired by this dress. Side note, I thought about trying to get this dress and wearing it for our sermon. Like, I thought... Visual aid and Halloween costume, you know, win-win. Um, to put this together would have been about 8K, so you guys got a picture. Um, but imagine, you know, if it's 8K now, imagine how much wealth was tied into, you know, just getting that the people of Israel put into um, dressing this man, dressing their high priest. And there's, there's a couple of notes. You could go pretty deep on this stuff. I'm just going to kind of skim the surface. A couple of notes that I found interesting here. Um, the gold plate uh, at the crown on the base of his turban is inscribed with the phrase, holiness to the Lord. So the holiness of God and the high priest's call to be holy, to be set apart for God, um, it was literally on his mind as he worked. Uh, on each shoulder, he had two large onyx stones. And on each stone was engraved six names of the tribes of Israel. So the six oldest ones on one shoulder and the six youngest one on another shoulder. So you could literally say that this man carried the weight of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. That kind of checkered looking breastplate that he's uh, got in front here, um, those are precious jewels 
um, that are, uh, you know, um, in, sewn into a fine fabric. And each one of those jewels has a tribe of Israel inscribed on it. So the people and their needs are literally close to his heart. And this was his dress. This is what he wore um, as he performed his most important task. And his most important task was to enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and make an atoning sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now, a, a quick word on the Holy of Holies and the Day of Atonement, because there's a lot to unpack there, too. Um, the Holy of Holies was like a little room. It was a little room. Um, a windowless room inside the temple behind a thick, ornate curtain. I think uh, Brad talked a little bit about that curtain in the liturgy. Um, and, and in that little room, it contained Israel's most treasured items, most treasured artifacts. So you had the Ark of the Covenant. And then within the Ark, you had the stone tablets of Moses. And you had Aaron's staff. And there was a jar of manna um, and scrolls, Moses' first scrolls would be in there. Um, and he had these, these cherubim, these 10 feet tall cherubim covering the ark. And um, the curtain that separated there, it wasn't like a, a red velvet rope at a museum that you know, keeps you from like touching the artifacts. I think maybe that was part of it. But the reason the big curtain was there was to keep people from dropping dead. The place, this little room, was off limits for everyone all the time. No, nobody was allowed back there um, because it was said that God himself would appear over the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is the lid of the ark. God himself would manifest over the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. And it was fatal for a sinful person to be in the presence of God's holiness. They would drop dead. The exception was that once a year, after spending seven days praying and, and preparing, the high priest would, would cleanse himself. He would wash himself, and then he would make a sacrifice for his own sin. And then he would go in holding, like burning incense. And the reason he had this burning incense is so that the smoke would create sort of a veil, so he wouldn't get a direct glimpse of God. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would splatter the blood of a sacrificed goat on the mercy seat to pay for the sins of the people. Paul reminds us in, in uh, um, Romans that the wages of sin is death. So sin, the way sin is paid for is death, is with blood. But instead of the blood of the people, God accepted the blood of this animal on their behalf. And the stakes here were incredibly high. Um, an unworthy entrance. If, if the high priest went in and didn't perform the rituals correctly or went in in an unworthy way, it meant death. Um, the bells at the bottom of the robe, he's got these little bells, and they would tinkle as he would um, uh, walk. And if it stopped, you stopped hearing that little jingling of the bells, they would know something is wrong. 
And they actually the, uh, would say that they would, they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest. So if he dropped dead in there, they had a way of getting him out. Um, the people of Israel were an active participant in this. Um, while the high priest was in there, they would prepare themselves outside and the nation would be um, partaking in the somber event by fasting, fervently fasting and praying. Um, they're praying that for God's forgiveness and they're praying that God would accept this sacrifice on their behalf. So basically, you have the holiest person, the high priest, on the holiest day, the day of atonement, going into the holiest place, the holy of holies. And this is a, like, it's a somber event, but there's beauty in it. There's, there's something bordering on, on majestic about it. There's a hope in it for the Israelite people that yes, maybe God will accept our sacrifice and maybe we will be made right with the Lord. And this, this guy and this day is what the reader of Hebrews, the person that the writer is writing to, this is what the reader would have been thinking about when they were considering the life that they left behind. Because imagine, let's put, that, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a second. This new Christian, you know, maybe they've had that magical conversion moment and maybe the magic's wearing off a little bit and they, they, they remember, now that I'm a Christian, I'm oppressed by the Romans. I'm shunned by my Jewish community. I'm forced to meet secretly underground and I'm mocked for worshiping a dead criminal. You know, they're probably thinking, this is not the smooth lane that I thought it would be. This is quite a rocky path. And then they look back and they see the hope and the grandeur of the high priest and the ceremonies. And they look down at the rocks and the roots at their feet. And it could make turning around seem pretty attractive. And this is a, a good question for us to be asking ourselves. You know, obviously... We're not drawn to this. But when we, you know, where, we have to ask ourselves, where do we turn for hope when our path gets bumpy? You know, is, is it Jesus? Or is there something glimmering in our path? Or in our past? Or is there something glimmering out there in the world that tempts us? And what the author of Hebrews would say is he's, he's saying this over and over again. Hold fast to your confession. What's your confession? Jesus is Lord. Hold fast to your confession. And he's, he's aiming to turn our head around and pick our eyes up off of our feet and, and draw them upward. And he does this in verse 14, quite literally when he says that we have a high priest in Jesus who has passed through the heavens. And just this little simple phrase tells us three things. One, it connects Jesus to this incredibly important role of the high priest. Jesus is the mediator that stands between us and God. Jesus is the hope. The second thing it does is it, it elevates Jesus above any historical high priest when it calls him the great high priest. Because there's no other high priest in the Bible called great. That adjective 
is reserved for Jesus alone. And then third, and maybe most importantly here, it places Jesus in heaven. The old high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. And then under the most like dreadful, careful, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the right adjective is. It was a, had to be a scary moment when he entered into the Holy of Holies because death was on the line. He could die. But our high priest Jesus is right now, right now, this very moment while we're sitting here and I'm talking to you right now, seated, seated comfortably at the right hand of the throne of God. That is an incredible difference. Yes, the high priest is important. And yes, we need a mediator. But who needs Gandalf in a blue dress when you can have Jesus at the right hand of God? Can your high priest stand next to God? Can the thing that you're searching for, can the glimmering thing that you look to for hope in your life, can it stand next to God? Jesus can. And in the next verse, in verse 15, in case we worry about, you know, if, if we're worried that a perfectly holy priest in heaven can't relate to us, the author assures us that he can. Having been made flesh and experiencing the, like, the trials and the temptations that come with life, Jesus knows the difficulty and he sympathizes with us. And this is just incredible. I mean, if this doesn't like stir something in your heart, maybe you're just, you know, distracted. Because I think this should stir something in all of our hearts. This is amazing. Jesus knows how rocky our path can be because he's walked it. And although he did, he did not stumble, he doesn't condemn us for stumbling. He sympathizes with us. He's like walking next to us going, yeah, I remember that rock. Oh, and I remember that root. That was a big one. I want to do like a, just a really quick thought exercise here. Okay. Close your eyes and think of God's throne. All right. Imagine God's throne in your mind. Okay. What are some things that you're imagining? Maybe, maybe you're thinking of, you know, the angels that we hear are singing all around God, holy, holy, holy. Maybe you're imagining Jesus at his right hand. Um, I don't know. Imagine God's throne. Okay. What are some of the descriptors that you might use to describe it? I mean, some of the things that pop into my mind first would be like glory, like a place of just extreme glory, majesty, power, might, all-inspiring greatness. And those are all, I, I think, those are all really right. But now look at verse 16 and look at what the author of Hebrews writes. How does he describe it? The author calls it the throne of grace. Of all the adjectives that he could throw out about God's throne, the thing he wants you to know is that it is a place of grace. And then, in a more 
amazing sentence. He says, draw near. He calls us to draw near to God's throne. And how different could this be? How much more different could this be than the Holy of Holies? Because the curtain in the Holy of Holies was basically a sign. And the sign said, stay out or you'll die. And Jesus is at the right hand of God, at God's throne. And he says, draw near and find grace. Oh, how different, how beautiful is that? Now, do you hide from God when you stumble? I think that's, that's pretty, a pretty natural inclination for all of us. When, when we sin, we pull away from God because we think, you know, we'll feel shameful or we'll feel dirty. We'll, we'll, we'll know that we're not worthy to be in the holy spaces. We're not worthy to be in the presence of the holy God. And I want you to hear that that's not the posture of Jesus. We, we covered this in the liturgy. When Jesus died, that curtain was split in two. And the Holy of Holies was left exposed. God moved out. That curtain, it was a constant reminder that sin renders humanity unfit for the presence of God. And the fact that the high priest had to do this sin offering ritual every single year, it showed that um, sin could not truly be atoned or erased by the blood of an animal. But Jesus Christ, through his death, he has removed the barriers between God and man. The curtain is split. And his place in the heavens, him standing next to God, proves that his sacrifice was fully accepted. And we are now invited there's an invitation for us to draw near with confidence and boldness. And there's a, a reason why Christians don't celebrate the Day of Atonement. We don't celebrate Yom Kippur. Does anybody know when Yom Kippur is? It was like two weeks ago. Did we celebrate anything? No, we don't really care. <laughs> um, it matters little to us because we don't have to make a new sacrifice. Jesus made the perfect and final sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus is the great high priest and he invites you into the Holy Spirit, holy spaces. We don't need to run. That's what the author is saying of Hebrews saying, don't run, draw near to the throne of grace. Find grace, find mercy for help in your time of need. Now the, the application for today's sermon in today's text. It's pretty simple. Remember that Jesus is your great high priest, that he's your mediator and your hope, and draw near to him with confidence in his love and grace. But I, I do want to share maybe a little bit of practical advice. Um, if you've noticed, as you've been listening, I've used a lot of like rocky path, rooty path language in this sermon. And it may have felt a little forced, <laughs> maybe a little shoehorned in, but it was deliberate. Um, this summer, thanks to uh, Pastor Brandon, I have been spending a lot of time mountain biking on rocky and rooting, rooty paths. And uh, sometimes it feels like my tire is magnetically drawn to every rock and every root out there. I have taken 
<laughs> more you know, spills on my bike than I would like to admit, and I have plenty of scars to prove it. Um, but the best advice that I've heard uh, when it comes to biking, and I think this applies more broadly, and the, the advice that I've tried to pass down to my son when we've gone biking is stop looking down at your front tire. Don't look down at your front tire because when you look down at your front tire and you see that rock, you're going to try to avoid it, but nine times out of 10, you're going to hit what you're looking at. Nine times out of 10, you're going to hit that rock. And so what you need to do is lift your gaze up. In biking, five yards, 10 yards ahead of you, look at that next curve, look at the crest of the next hill. All right, and when your gaze is up, what's going to happen is your body will almost, as if by magic, maneuver around these rocks and roots. And if you do hit them, you're going to hit them with a little bit of momentum. You're going to hit them with a little bit of speed, and it's not going to stall you out or flip you over your handlebars. And, and friends, I think this is the genius of what the author is trying to do for us. This is the genius of fixing your eyes on Jesus. Because we know that the Christian life is the rocky path. And we're choosing it over that smooth lane that leads to nowhere. But when our eyes are on Jesus, as opposed to like these obstacles themselves, the rocks and roots at our feet, we won't be overwhelmed and we won't be tempted to look back. We won't turn around our bike and go home. And so here are some questions that I really want you to, to, to stew on. Here are some questions I want you to take home, think about at lunch, think about, uh, talk about in your community group. Um, question one is, like, what does it mean for you to fix your eyes on Jesus? Because in the same way that inviting Jesus into your life can kind of be an abstract thought, like, what does it look like for you to fix your eyes on Jesus? I want you to flesh that out with, with your... Um, with your friends or with the people that you talk to about this stuff or even just spend some time in meditation thinking about it. What does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? Are there, um, are there distractions in your life that you need to remove? You know, what are the things that compete with, for your attention to Jesus? Now here's where I'm like, as a, as a preacher, I am contractually obligated to bash social media and Facebook. Um, <laughs> But I, but I, I kind of I do, I'm, I'm there, you know what I mean? That's a big one for a lot of us. Um, but maybe it's something different for you. What are the things that distract you, that pull your eyes down? Um, are there habits that you need to encourage? Because, I mean, for me, sometimes I found, there's two, sometimes there's two ways to go about, you know, changing the trajectory of your life. You can try to stop doing something that you don't want to do, or you can try to start doing something differently. Um, and sometimes it's easier to focus on doing something new as opposed to stopping doing something. So maybe there's something you need to start. Like for me, if I'm not spending time in God's Word, if I'm not you know, spending some time trying to think through the Bible, it's really hard for me to fix my eyes on Jesus. Like that's something I need to encourage in my life. Deep conversations with friends is another thing where we need to have those conversations to help us refocus and lift our eyes up. And then the last question, what difference would it make if you regularly adjusted your gaze up? If you regularly brought those, your eyes from your feet 
up towards Jesus. What difference would that make? Would that do anything when you're going over the bumps at your feet? So I want you to stew on those. That's the takeaway from this sermon. Um, as you stew on those uh, right now, I want to invite you um, uh, or extend Jesus' invitation to you um, to take communion. The only requirement here is to have a faith in Jesus. Uh, when we do this, um, we're proclaiming Jesus' sacrifice, that great and final sacrifice as our own. Uh, this, but the communion, it isn't a new thing. It's um, celebrating and claiming an old thing that was done for us on our behalf a long time ago. So the night before Jesus died, he was with his friends and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, hey, this is my body broken for you. And then he raised the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And then he asked them to eat. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So friends, with your eyes fully fixed on Jesus, I invite you to come up and take communion. Let me pray. God, I know that there's a lot of rocks and roots in, in, in folks' lives right now. I know that there's people who are struggling. I know that there's things that it's hard to take our eyes off of. Um, I know that there are things that, um, that claim to give us, to claim hope for us that, that really don't deliver. Um, I know that these things will lose their power and will lose their hold, hold over us when we, when we put our eyes on you, Lord. And so that's my prayer that you would help us be a people who are continually training themselves to draw their eyes back towards you. Lord, allow us to continue to look to you for our hope, continue to look to you for our, our, our justification. Um, Lord, I thank you that you're, you're so inviting, that you're so welcoming, that even in our sinfulness, you keep saying, come close. You never push us out. You keep saying, come close. God, that's an amazing that's an amazing characteristic, and um, I thank you for it. Uh, thank you for this time of communion. Amen.